We had some user feedback last week on one of the Reforge course videos. It was like, this is obviously like a fake AI, Brian. It sounds super robotic. You all shouldn't should change this. But it was actually my real voice in recording. <laughs> so, <laughs> Welcome back to this week's episode of Unsolicited Feedback with me, Fareed Mosavat, and my co-host, Brian Balfour. This week, we talk about the biggest news that we've seen in the growth and marketing space, which is HubSpot's acquisition of Clearbit. To talk through this effectively, we invited the best expert that we know in the world on marketing technology, Austin Hay. Austin Hay is currently the head of MarTech at Ramp, but he's also worked at companies like Branch, Runway, and advised companies like Notion, Walmart, and Postmates on their marketing technology stacks and marketing technology strategies. We can't think of anyone better equipped to talk through this big announcement than Austin. Next, we dive into a blog post from the CEO of Equals, Bobby Panero, where he talks about the challenges that they faced with freemium and actually discouraging many companies from taking on a freemium model. We talk about some of the lessons you might be able to learn from this example, but also discuss more broadly, when is freemium a fit? When is it the right model for your company? Just a word of warning. We use a lot of acronyms and buzzwords in marketing technology in our conversation of Clearbit. If you have any questions about definitions, check out the show notes where we try to define as many of the terms as possible. And if you still have remaining questions, feel free to reply to our posts on LinkedIn and ask follow-ups. Lastly, This is our final Thursday episode. We'll be switching to Tuesday releases from here on forward. Thanks for listening. Let's dive right in. Well, last week, HubSpot announced an acquisition of Clearbit, which was a bit of a surprise. It was a bit out of the blue. It wasn't something that I think people were expecting. And if you're unfamiliar with Clearbit, Clearbit was started in 2014. They've only raised about, I think, 16 million of capital or so. And they're a data business. They have three main products. Prospect, which is kind of like a contact database, which I believe competes mostly with something like ZoomInfo and where ZoomInfo has been historically. The second product is Enrich, which is where I believe they started the company through a developer API that made it really easy to enrich your current contacts, whether that was in your CRM or your ESP or other types of tools. And then the third product they have is Reveal, which helps you convert your anonymous traffic into a pending different identity so that you can help understand who's on your website, from what companies, look at buying intent, and kind of really help you through that sales cycle. And so this deal has not closed. So I had to literally handcuff myself to not reach out to a bunch of people I know at HubSpotters to kind of get the inside info. Uh, I was like really tempted to do that, but it was a bit of a surprise. I I didn't necessarily expect this. And so I know Austin, you're just kind of head deep in the MarTech sales tech type of space constantly. So I'm interested in hearing what your first thoughts and reactions to this acquisition are. And then I've got a bunch of thoughts on where they might be trying to take this, but Austin, I'd love to start with you. So first of all, I think it's like super fascinating. The enrichment space on its own is like a very interesting category. And, you know, there are competitors in this space. There's like ZoomInfo, there's Demandbase, and there's Apollo. What you said about the three products, though, I feel like actually is on the edge of where Apollo is going, which is, you know, kind of a all-in-one solution to allow you both to prospect, find leads, and enrich them. 
So it's more than just like providing data, it's actually doing something with that data. Whereas with ZoomInfo, classically is just like an enrichment tool that you would plug into any part of your Salesforce stack. What is interesting and speaks to me more is that, you know, point solution data providers have to expand out of their wedge in order to be successful. So this consolidation into existing platforms makes a lot of sense. You know, again, we're seeing that with Apollo, for example, like it's not a big enough TAM, in my opinion, to just do enrichment alone. And so you have to do enrichment and then something else. And the natural extension is lead generation, scraping, prospecting. I think in Clearbit's case, at least from my own experience using the product, never really found a lot of success with prospect because it doesn't fit into a broader workflow. It takes people away from the tools that they're doing their work Mm. in. And, you know, the problem with Reveal is infrastructure today just makes it really hard to actually convert anonymous identities into true identities. At their core, even if you have web browsers, it's based on IP. And so that's like somewhat unreliable. So I also think like that product on its own has like a questionable value, just like not 100% match. That consolidation, though, I don't think is just happening with Clearbit. I think it's happening across the stack, which in my mind reinforces the reason why Clearbit did it. We're seeing companies like Clary and Gong and Outreach, they're all kind of moving laterally across the value chain in the sales market stack or the revenue stack. And that's because, you know, they're, they're picking an area to start, become an expert, and then realizing like in order to find growth, they have to complete the workflow. And this is following like the same consolidation and compound model that I think a lot of businesses are following now. The challenge is that none of those companies are the CRM and HubSpot is a CRM. And they're a really good CRM compared to a lot of options out there. And so like the questions that I had when I first was thinking about it is like, you know, on one hand, they could incorporate it natively into the HubSpot platform, but that doesn't necessarily do anything to the existing customer base. So it's just like all net new for customers. Like we have a brand new small founding team coming on to HubSpot, growing with the business. They're just going to build with Enrich based right in. But there are really, really large businesses that use the enrichment API on top of Salesforce, other other tools in the stack that HubSpot may want to curtail. So I was thinking, you know, at some point in the future, do they start to curtail those services as a way to like forcing people to use HubSpot as the center source of truth? That could be like a very interesting strategy play. And then the other thought I had is like, maybe they're going to start investing more in outbound automation tooling to compete with tools like Apollo and other sales engagement tools, just because you could kind of do it before if you used a, a CRM and a tool like Outreach or Salesforce.com. But HubSpot is like uniquely positioned having the email marketing capability, basically being able to send emails and outreach directly from the tool, you could imagine that they actually invest quite heavily in a sales platform to compete with Apollo. And then the last thing, which I'm sure people are thinking about, but is not structured yet, is just like, what does this mean for AI and personalization? You know, if you natively have information about somebody in your CRM already, when you're constructing messages to them, could they suggest ways to tailor those messages automatically? Even something as simple as like, you know, when you're writing email code, You have to like say, hey, curly brackets, first name. If there is no first name, click none or whatever. Like maybe it's just smart enough to figure that out, you know? So I'm really interested in that. And then the last thing, which is more of a technical nuance is like every stack that I've worked in, I've seen Clearbit connected in like three or four different places, which not only is like bad architecture, it's like bad redundancy. If if you've taken the MarTech course, it's like one of the topics. You don't want to have bad redundancy. And I wonder if they'll like help change that now because I mean, it it would actually be like much better for companies to just have all the enrichment going through one single pipeline and then into the warehouse. Most common stacks have it like in segment and the CRM and HubSpot and the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So they could actually do something about about that as well. 
Uh, I want to take a little bit of a pause here because there are probably a lot of people who are listening who haven't taken your great marketing technology course at Reforge and define the concept of bad redundancy. So in the course, you talk about the different elements that make a marketing technology stack great. And one of them is this concept of redundancy. So there's good redundancy where you can maybe use the same tool to get at the same data at different points, but maybe have one that's the preferred solution. But then there's this other idea of bad renunci. And I think in this case, what you see with something, for instance, like enrichment is if you're enriching data across different parts of your stack into different tools at different times, even though you're using the same data source, it's highly likely that that data can get out of sync, out of date, or have differing opinions about, for instance, who Fareed Mosavat is in different parts of the stack, depending on what tool you're using based on when that data was enriched. Austin, I think just to take a quick step back, you better than almost anybody understand all the different pieces of the marketing technology stack. You said that people implement Clearbit in a couple of different places. What are the most common? So if I'm a B2B SaaS company and I am using enrichment in some way, like what are the common places where I would use Clearbit's data? And who's actually doing it? Is it developers on the team? Is it outsourced? Is it an integration? Like if I'm a Clearbit customer, how am I using it today? Yeah. 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 Typically, like if you use Clearbit, you go on, you sign up for an account, you get a dev key from them. If you log into the Clearbit UI, they have those three products that Brian talked about, Prospect, Enrich, and Reveal. They have actually like a very basic enrichment tool where you upload a list and it will enrich it and then give you the list back. And that's what a lot of people actually use early on in a company lifecycle. Because you can imagine you're like, I went to a conference, I met 100 people, I like got their names, I want to figure out who they are. I actually think it's a great tool. And so enrich means like get their LinkedIn's, get their names, get their titles, get their companies, business, kind of company. And, and it has it has some interesting data too. like if, if it can find the domain and figure out from Crunchbait or somewhere else how much money you raise, like all that information yeah. is available. Most of the time, though, that you graduate into developer usage, which is where you're just using the API key either to enrich data through some type of third party or you're making an API call directly on your website. And so the second case website is really easy, right? Like somebody enters their email address on your website. You have your developer make a backend call to Clearbit to get information about them. And then you use that either to route the user or enrich them or whatever. And that, I would say a lot of people do that. It does require an engineer. So you could imagine like a requirement is having like a growth engineering team or a growth engineer. The more common case I see is the first one, which is where you're just plugging in your API key to a third party. Like you go into segment and you set up, which is a CDP, and you already have segment running on your site and you're like, I'm already collecting people in my lead form. I just want to get more attributes on the profile of the user. You enter your segment key and what's happening is in the background, when it gets an email address, it's going to make a request to Clearbit and then enrich that. And then you'll have all those attributes on the profile. But you can imagine if you do that in segment and then you do it in HubSpot and then you do it in Madkudu and then you do it in Salesforce, now you're enriching like three or four times. And that introduces a number of problems. The first is like, may run up your charges against Clearbit because I think it's based on number of API requests. So maybe it doesn't matter if you're really small, but certainly matters if you get bigger. Second thing is like staleness of data. You know, if your dream is to have all your tools with the same data, but if your CDP is collecting information at one point, but then it's refreshed a day later when Salesforce and other tool makes the call, then you have mismatched data between the tools. So how do you know actually what's right? And I see that as being actually the problem is those two factors. What's interesting here is when I think about what a CRM is, it's basically a Rolodex, like a paper Rolodex, but in a database, right? 
And traditional CRMs basically were like empty cards and you had to fill everything out. You had to say like, okay, here's the email address, here's their name, a salesperson or somebody else would type in all the information. So it makes a lot of sense for this kind of enrichment to not be like something you have to tack on to CRM, but rather native to the CRM. Person comes to your website, they sign up and you already know who they are. That seems like that's the goal. Now you needed a developer to do that. But it seems like at least reading HubSpot's blog posts and stuff, their vision is that your CRM is filling itself out over time. And that seems very valuable for HubSpot to make it more powerful, especially for their market, which is like mid-market, small customers, et cetera, who don't have an engineering team to do this work or otherwise don't even know that it's possible. Like I suspect there's a big piece of the puzzle that's like, I don't even know it's possible to do this because I don't have a Austin Hay on my <laughs> MarTech team to evaluate these tools and sort of figure out which of Zoom Info, Apollo, et cetera. And it all like fits into HubSpot's like all-in-one strategy, which is like everything you could possibly want with CRM that is either enriches and fills out the CRM, but also all the things you would use a CRM for, like you described, outbound, you know, operations, et cetera, all is all in one bundled solution. This seems like an obvious buy on some level. I'm curious why you think other CRM players haven't done this. Is it because Clearbit is available and they can just like flip a switch? Or is it because they still see themselves as my job is to help you fill out an empty database? Well, yeah. well Salesforce tried to do that. They bought this old, you remember Jigsaw way back yeah. <laughs> in the day? Oh, you don't remember Jigsaw? Yeah, they bought Jigsaw for like 150, 200 million bucks. And it, Jigsaw was one of the first products, which was, hey, if you give me information, I give you information back. Wow. So you would enter your contact info, like share some of your contact information. That's how they built their database. And that turned into a data.com, which is like one of the best freaking domains in the world, right? But I believe Salesforce shut it down. <laughs> A few years ago, and I don't know exactly why, and they haven't necessarily returned. I don't think they have a competing product in the space. I, I haven't been part of the Salesforce ecosystem for a long time for a whole host of reasons, so I'm not deeply familiar with it. But but I think some others have tried this a bit. It's a funny question. I was laughing because first part is like, there's just not a lot of CRM competition out there. You could say there is, but like, how many people really consider tools besides HubSpot and Salesforce at this point. So I think there's lack of market diversification. So saying it's been done before, there's just not a big enough sample size. And there's like Pipedrive and Close. There's some newcomers like Apollo and Pogio, but there's really not anybody who can do it. And, and so that's the first factor. The second factor is like, I don't think Salesforce is like physically capable of doing it at this point. You know, like they're built on an Oracle database. They're 20 years old. Like it would be a monumental effort for them to try to like oh, build a proprietary database and and you would think that they have it right i mean they actually have customer records for probably everybody in the world amongst different partitions right. so like why couldn't they build a service to actually just compile data and enrich it across all their customers i just think the engineering effort for them is infeasible yeah it's like an original sin of their architecture basically is like every customer is in a different database they don't even think of owning they don't own that data probably in their terms of service and other it seems like there's probably some structural reason why they can't do it yeah. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. I'm interested in a slightly different question, which is the word on the street is that Clearbit's been on the market for a yeah. little while. Yeah. And they didn't go beyond raising an additional round. So I'm interested why, Austin, from your perspective, why they were potentially on the market for so long 
it seems like other products like Zoom Info and others have just like really found a, a wheel to crank. So I don't know. I'm interested if you have any take on why they might have struggled a little bit more than others. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating because like it's a great product. And I, I think anybody who's used yeah. Clearbit would say, you know, it's not bad. And I've been using Clearbit since, God, my first job back at Branch when they first started. But, you, you know, so one observation is I think they were on the hunt for, you know, a new CEO for a while and they had to bring back in the co-founder co-founding team also has been at it for like 10 years. And so there's also just like maybe fatigue. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, limited market space, in my opinion. Enrichment is hard because you the way that you compete is basically by having better data, right? That's a really tough place to operate in where like there's no product differentiation other than like how good is your data? Even when we were evaluating, you know, Zimunfo and Clearbit, it was just like, we're going to give you a sample of like 100 customers or 10,000 customers, whatever it is. And we're going to look at what you give back to us and then the percent match is basically how we make the decision and a lot of factors can come into that like if you have foreign presence versus us if that sample actually just is good for you or not i think it's also just like a tough business to be in when you don't have product differentiation and like you said they have these other products they have prospect and reveal reveal in my opinion is again hard because anonymous browsing has just become more and more normalized so like you're really not able to reveal people that well so i think that is kind of a, a hard place to operate in. And on the prospect front, it's all about workflow, right? Where you create audiences, how you find people, that's very specific to the company. And often people want to do that in other tools. So again, at that point, then you are a developer platform. So yeah. I, I think in my mind, if they had wanted to be more successful, I, I feel like they would have just leaned in more to what their DNA was, which was like API-based services. I think they tried to thread that line between UI-based services, de- developer tools, adjacent services, but never really found a connection point of like multiple compound activities that you can do together that help enrichment. And again, we're seeing that now with like Apollo being a compound startup where you have enrichment, but what does the enrichment do? It allows you to prospect and find people. And that's the real tool is the ability to actually create lead gen. Well, I do think this is why the deal to me makes a lot of sense from both sides. So if you look at it from Clearbit's side, right, to your point, if they really want to expand and go deeper, they've got to get into workflow, but that is not their company DNA, right? Or history at all. That would be a really tough thing to add and position and market given all of the historical gravity about who they are and what they do and, and all those pieces. So So then like if you look at from their perspective of like, hey, you know, the best marriage here is to sell to somebody who do own one of the pieces of the workflow. Well, to your point, there are only a couple CRMs on the market like Salesforce and the other ones are smaller potatoes. So it'd be really hard to do like that type of acquisition. And if you look at some of the bigger, the growing workflow tools, like maybe in the sales acceleration space, Gong and others they can't leverage value out of Clearbit in the same way that HubSpot does. We're talking a lot about the integration of the CRM, but I actually think this integrates into all of the hubs of HubSpot, right? Into their marketing hub, into their CMS hub. I imagine Reveal just becomes like a default feature within HubSpot's CMS, into their sales products, into their CRM. So HubSpot is in a unique position to get way more value out of this acquisition than many others in the space who might have been potential buyers. And that's why it seems like an interesting one plus one equals three in this situation. The interesting thing that I did note from looking at the announcement is, and this is a departure for HubSpot, is that 
they're acquiring this and keeping Clearbit as a subsidiary of HubSpot. And they, they're indicating that it's going to stay as like a standalone product and company, which HubSpot has never done. All of their historical acquisitions have been either killing the product and rolling in the team or the tech. Even looking at the Hustle, which was one of their previous acquisitions, the Hustle is completely on you know the HubSpot domain as well. It was an interesting like little nugget yeah. that I picked up, which I have so some this, other ideas about where this might go. But yeah, Farid. This was a question that I wanted to ask the group. So in three years, will Clearbit exist as an independent company? I'm curious to hear each of your opinions. Like, will I, as a developer, be able to, as a non-HubSpot customer, go to Clearbit and enrich my own data in some way? Austin, what's your bet? Clearbot.hubspot.com, right? That's where you'll go? Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I'm a pessimist, I guess. I think that they rolled into HubSpot at some point, mostly because of that when we first started talking, the strategic advantage for HubSpot is like a lot of people actually use Clearbit on other CRM platforms. And I think if they were smart, they would want to drive those people to using HubSpot or extracting the value from HubSpot directly or having that as part of their value acquisition. To your point, Brian, about releasing it this way to start, I think they don't want to shake any waters or make people fearful that their Clearbit service will be interrupted and go searching for alternatives. Because again, if you're like a big Clearbit user and you're plugged into Salesforce and now HubSpot acquires them, the first place my mind would go as like a RevOps leader would be, oh, we should like think about switching tools because they're going to probably limit our ability to use the tool unless we're part of HubSpot. So unless you're a customer, that could be a concern. So yeah, I think three years from now, it will not be a completely standalone product. I will caveat that by saying like, maybe you can still go to clearbit.com, but I think they will have heavily incentivized you to be using HubSpot to get the most value. So that may mean like a direct integration. You don't actually have to sign up for Clearbit. You just open your HubSpot and you have a Clearbit key already. Maybe it becomes a la carte as part of your HubSpot subscription. So if you want to buy it separately, you can. Otherwise, all the data is incorporated into the CRM. But I don't think that it exists completely standalone as we see it today. I'll add one little tidbit, which might make me think that it stays standalone. So so I can't mm. tell. You, th- there is a possible path here that they just add this as like another hub, you know, on that on that graphic that we showed. A few, hub. It, it, like data. No, I think it's just like data hub. Data or, hub. Yeah, you know, da- data hub or something like that. Okay. I, th- that is a possibility. But I, I will say when we started these sales products uh, at HubSpot and we looked at the CRM and we looked at what is now sales hub, we looked at a bunch of the outbound tools like outbound.io and those pieces. And the conclusion we came to at the time was that it was too risky of a space for us to enter for a whole host of reasons. And I can't remember all of the details, but one of the risks that you run with those outbound sales tools is it is definitely a gray territory with some of the privacy and spam laws of the way that users use that. And the thing that we were a tiny bit afraid of was with the marketing product being the thing that generated all the money at the time, the last thing we wanted to do was risk any sort of deliverability with our marketing product because that would just like totally tank the ESP. So there's possibly some like legal reasons here of like why they would might want to keep Clearbit a little bit separate. And I don't know how that would protect HubSpot in some of these other products, but I I do remember those conversations from back in the day. This is like almost 10 years ago. So I do wonder how they are thinking about it. I have no idea how Clearbit gets their data and where that might run up to the growing set of 
privacy laws. Austin, do you have any idea of how Clearbit gets their data? I have some idea, but I would say your point about the IPs is actually far more fascinating, in my opinion. You know, there's a lot of places you can buy or broker data. You can get a lot of information from IP address and what you can get off the browser. There's just like a lot of scraping that goes into it, too. You can scrape things like LinkedIn and other sources that you're technically not supposed to, but that's what they do. But the IP address issue is like very interesting to me. I never thought about the fact that, you know, HubSpot actually has its own proprietary IPs that you use when you send your marketing emails. And the way that a lot of these companies actually do cold outbound is they'll buy to like SendGrid, they'll set up IPs that are dedicated for outbound, and they'll keep those completely separate from like transactional emails. You know, even at Ramp, we have like a transactional set of IPs that we use for sending receipts and all that stuff. We have IPs for our cold outbound program. And then we have HubSpot, which has its own dedicated set of IPs. And that point around the fact that, hey, they may not want to integrate it because it could just be actually technologically very hard to separate the marketing hub product IPs from any type of new product. There'd be a lot of infrastructure changes that would go into that if you had to basically build a brand new set of sales-based marketing IPs that don't rely on the marketing hub email IPs and then build UI functionality on top of that. That actually would be very, very challenging, especially for you know, a company as, as large as HubSpot, just messing with infrastructure is very challenging at that size and stage. That to me actually is a really revealing point on why they may keep it totally separate is like there may not actually be a good way to integrate it into any type of automation product. This might also prevent them from adding another product that is more targeted at outbound to compete with something like Sales Navigator. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not they leverage this acquisition to add that to the portfolio. But your point earlier about how the prospect tool in Clearbit right now just suffers from not being in an existing workflow where a user has a habit is... It's just like, it's really interesting and really fascinating, especially when you think about whether or not HubSpot wants to compete with something like Sales Navigator. I'll say I would definitely take the under. I don't think that the Clearbit product will be able to be bought standalone in three years unless you're a HubSpot customer and some at least like a core CRM customer for two reasons. One, I think it's off strategy. Like if you look at all the things that HubSpot does, they are not in the business of like having a random side product. They are not Atlassian. It is not the way their loop works. It is not the way their engine works. Maybe that's changing, but I don't think that's the case. Their stated strategy and everything they're doing is about building an all-in-one tool bundled across all of the different domains that you would need a CRM-like things for. And we see this with the Commerce Hub stuff. We see this with everything they've they've released recently. The second is I actually think Clearbit's product gets better because it's integrated with HubSpot for all the reasons that Austin talked about. If you're a third-party independent data broker, you have to go scrape and scrap and go find all this data from different places. But if you're HubSpot, you have humans typing things into cards that like say who these people are and what they do. And I think that there's a world where there may be like a marketplace type thing where like you give some, get some around your CRM data to enrich this data and make it more valuable. And I don't think they're going to like be like, oh, and then you can just buy that if you're not a HubSpot customer. I suspect that that kind of thing is not going to be the case. That's my guess. I think the people who get 
hurt the most here, which I suspect is a small part of Clearbit's business, but an interesting one for me is they actually have another product we haven't talked about, which is Powered By, which is that I can build products that use Clearbit's data and then integrate that deeply in my product. So I don't know if Superhuman uses this, but for instance, when I open an email from Superhuman, I get a card that shows me all this interesting info about that person from their email address. Maybe they went and built that themselves, but I suspect a lot of products that do that use Powered by Clearbit to do that. I can't see a world where HubSpot is like continuing to support that product. Yeah, it doesn't fit the strategic puzzle. And I would even go, go farther to say that I don't even think turning it into HubSpot Data Hub fits the strategy in the sense that it doesn't feel like a billion dollar revenue opportunity, right? Like each one of those hubs independently could be, you know, from the mark the marketing yeah. tool already is, I believe. The CRM, the sales hub, the support, the CMS, they're all like billion dollar revenue opportunities. The billion dollar revenue opportunity, if they are going to add in the another hub and not just to integrate this in the existing ones, is the outbound tool. Sales navigator is at over a billion dollars of ARR. So even from that perspective, it doesn't really fit the the strategic puzzle. So that was my second question I wanted to riff on with you guys, which is, let's talk about Data Hub as a possible strategy. Let's say we're the HubSpot executive team and that is something we wanted to do. This data is not enough. That's not enough data to be like a billion dollar opportunity. We've seen this because there's a bunch of these companies and none of them are that big. What's the other data that would be a valuable thing for me to connect and add to CRM? Like my guess is, is, is HubSpot going to do... CDP? Are they going to do usage data, like analytics? Are they going to lean into like a bunch of product categories around, honestly, like things we think of as PLG stack stuff, <laughs> which Clearbit is the most obvious fit because it fits the normal CRM, fill out my database card of information. But what's the other information that's valuable to their customer base? Who's using my product? Who uses these features? How active are they? Who are my champion users within this customer? I wonder whether this could be step one of a bigger play into like owning more of that stack. And that maybe adds up to a billion dollar TAM. I don't know. <laughs> mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of companies are trying to be CDPs these days. And yeah. your definition of a CDP is like really what defines that. You know, HubSpot classically has differentiated itself from Salesforce and that it can collect like user and event data. There are serious limitations. Even their architecture is behind like kind of like a more modern CDP. So like you can send event data, but you can't send attributes on events. Um, even in HubSpot, you have to like create an internal name and then an external name for data. So it's like a little bit legacy, but there, there's this thought process of like, hey, if they now have enrichment data, they have, uh, you know, for all customers who are using the HubSpot SDK and collecting event data, they have behavioral data and they have marketing message data. They have a network of connections via the hub or the marketplace. So are they in a position to be like kind of an audience builder or even like some type of reverse ETL where they can compile data across different people or make insights or convey interesting touch points to sellers on what they want to do? So, so I think your point is that they could combine this data with other things that maybe they're doing well or not so well that they can improve in the future and make themselves more of like a place where people, both sales and marketing teams can combine their efforts to get more action out of their CRM. I still think there's a lot to do, but the fact that they are able to change their product incrementally faster than Salesforce, I think gives them an advantage. 
we keep coming back to that, but I can't overstate it. It's just like, even if HubSpot's <laughs> development cadence is like one new feature every three months, like that is still light years ahead of, <laughs> of Salesforce. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Here's another just random thought, which is just like, wow, these companies really wish they could have bought LinkedIn. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Salesforce did yeah. try to buy LinkedIn. Yeah. Benioff even like, said that publicly and it would just get was too expensive for them. Yeah. It was too expensive. I mean, all the legacy data problems aside, Clearbit is just a hack around the fact that there's no LinkedIn enrichment, <laughs> like good tools for enrichment or they're too expensive on LinkedIn. Like they have all this data. I will just say like the other problem for Clearbit that I want to just throw out, we used it at Slack but we actually used all of the data providers because none of them are good enough to be great. And so you end up doing this thing where if you're just raw data, you're just buying stuff from a bunch of places and trying to synthesize it into the best case view, use a little ML, whatever. And most sophisticated tools aren't buyers. That's like hard work, but it just turns out that like the match rate on none of them is good enough. But if you layer them all together, you get to like something. And what that does is it just like slices everybody up because all of the biggest customers have to buy all of the tools. It's like not differentiable. Anyway, the one place that actually has the highest <laughs> highest match rates is unavailable. So yeah, or at least owned by Microsoft. So that's fascinating too because actually, like I would I would argue that this space is becoming commoditized in a way because of that exact fact. Most companies that have engineering teams will do what's called an enrichment waterfall, where you take your highest match vendor and then you will run it through a sequencing. Yep. If you miss people, that way you can control costs because, like what you're saying, the overlay is the most expensive way to do it. You're paying for a match across every service provider, which gives you 100% visibility, but like maybe expensive waterfall approach means like you run it through Clearbit. If they come up with a null or not enough information, then you run it through ZoomInfo, then you run it through Apollo, then you run it through some other vendor. And at the end of it, you'll ensure that you have the highest possible match at the lowest possible cost. And that framework for enriching people, like Hightouch, for example, just built a service in a very similar way using different data brokers. And now they have their own enrichment service where right. when you take Snowflake data and you're sending it to a downstream vendor using the RETL suite, you can enrich it on the way out, or you can take an audience cut from Snowflake and enrich it in their warehouse. And you know the benefit there is like, hey, you don't have to go buy a tool. We've set up these arrangements for you. You can do a waterfall with four or five different vendors and get a, the same match rate that you'd get if you have to like go and engineer it yourself. So, so I would argue like, you know, high touch is doing it. Others are doing it. You can build it yourself. In my mind, that's just going to become more affordable and commoditized. So then, you know, that's going to put pressure on these all these providers to have like differentiated source of income. Random side story. Right after HubSpot, I was talking to LinkedIn about an open role. And one of their interview questions was, should we build a CRM product or not? <laughs> <laughs> and and what'd you say what i don't remember what i said I, for some reason i remember what they said which is that they actually didn't think it was strategic for them they weren't able to build a product that was unique and differentiated enough in the space that made sense for them and of course they pers at, at that time they had already been pursuing sales navigator i think for a little while i think it was actually pretty new at that point so it was an interesting i don't remember all other reasoning why but i do remember them telling me that coming off the hubspot thing it's a great interview question yeah. <laughs> Super interesting. It has no right answer, right? Yeah, that's fair. I ha I'm surprised so far in this conversation, we haven't talked a little bit more about does this 
parlay into anything AI related, right? It feels like a lot of the SaaS tools need to have a deeper data strategy if you believe data to some extent is going to be the differentiator and power a lot of the AI pieces on top of this. So I'm interested if either of you have a take on that piece. Yeah, I feel like the possibilities for AI, at least in my mind, there's twofold. One is, hey, can we actually make it so that when sellers are using part of Sales Hub, they just like don't have to think about personalizing based on information. So that cuts time for salespeople, obviously gets up-to-date information. The other thing I thought about for marketing would be, you know, as you're developing marketing campaigns, could you combine ClearBoot's kind of personalization data with other forms of personalization enrichment? Like a strategy would be like, hey, if we know who this person is, we know their name, we know their LinkedIn, we know their email address, could we actually scrape the internet to find interesting information about this person that is way more personal than just like first and last name? So like understanding of like their location and if they're a sports fan to try to include stuff about recent games. If we know their location and the weather, should we like mention something about the weather? I think the possibilities extend far beyond just like the Clearbit data. In my mind, the Clearbit data gives you really good signal though on then how to find deeper information using AI and LLMs. So that's what I'm very curious of is if they like explore AI from the perspective of how can we create interesting use cases in the marketing and sales hub to drive open rates and drive like more engagement in the things that people are sending as opposed to just like, yeah, again, like it'd be helpful if I don't have to type hi, first name, else, there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I have like a very weird sort of like view on this. Weird is good. Uh, that was just, <laughs> just unsolicited weird feedback yeah. is fine. Just triggered by some of the stuff Austin was talking about around the stuff with high touch and the match rates and, and, and just personalization, but also targeting, which is that, you know, if I'm a consumer brand, like I can go to Facebook and find people who like the stuff that I'm into, right? Like I can go there and be like, tell me people who have been clicking on shoes and like, let me put my shoes in front of them or a suitcase, like click on one suitcase, one duffel bag. And I get like duffel bag ads all day long. Cause they have this idea of what people are actively seeking. And I wonder whether there's something like, there's no home for this yet. Like the way Facebook does that is they have a place to put those ads to. They don't just sell data, right? They don't sell data. They straight up don't, they sell impressions. There's not the equivalent for B2B. Like, I don't know what people are in the market for on B2B products. I don't know when someone visits my website that they also visited my competitors or whatever. And I suspect that if you're like the dominant CRM and you are smart about how you use data and like do the right things about sequestering some and allowing some to be shared across the full domain, that there's some sort of better scoring you could do or better understanding you could have versus just Austin is the blank at ramp. He visited your website or signed up for your website and instead be like, he's in the market for a commerce tool (laughs) and has visited many others or something like that, which is why I think this like data hub thing could be really cool and doing that well will require a lot of like smart machine learning AI type stuff. So not just the, on the generative side, but on the like deeper fingerprinting of individuals, the way they have, we have on the consumer side that just doesn't exist on B2B, right? Like ad targeting stinks for B2B. I'm also laughing because it's just like every time privacy experts 
try to make it harder to track people, we find new inventive ways of tracking people. And maybe this is just the next generation of that. It's like, well, you creativity use, comes well, from describing. constraints. So they're just giving yeah. us constraints, you know? Yeah. What you're describing for is like, hey, it would be great if we just could use cookies on browsers to track when people are visiting sites and then sell that data, which is literally what you're not allowed to do anymore. Yeah. So it's like, well, maybe if machines do it and anonymize it in a way that is sensible, that could actually be really useful. That way you can't actually pinpoint individuals who are using products, but you have some sense of the audience who are using other products. That would be an interesting way to like be both privacy compliant while also trying to target better. Yeah. I've also I haven't thought, thought about, about how evil this is. So if it's evil audience, <laughs> sorry, I'm not trying to be evil. I'm just trying to like come up with wild ideas. So <laughs> it would be interesting and cool if you could actually gather deterministic data about people, about again, products they're visiting or other services but you could blind yourself to the actual email engagement that goes out. So for example, like if you had a competitor email and you could actually ask for people who visited competitor products, but you're not privy to who those emails go out to. Like HubSpot does the masking and sending for you. So you can actually engage with people without violating privacy. That would be really cool, but you know, very next gen because you'd have to remake your marketing system so that you could send things without having information or data about who it gets sent to. Yeah, this doesn't work well for email because like you can't send it. How do you send an email to someone without knowing their email address? And the reason this works on Facebook is because you can be like, I want to put an ad in front of these people and I don't need to know who they are until they click Mm -hmm. or actually do it. LinkedIn kind of has that engagement of those people. But my understanding of their ad products is there's not that much. The audiences are built on the things people type in the LinkedIn, not other products they visited, et cetera. So I don't know, maybe this isn't possible, but... I do think this kind of data, if you believe AI is valuable and will be the future of these products, you should be in the business of getting as much of it as humanly possible, even before you know what you can do with it, right? Like I don't normally say like the right thing to do is just do some stuff in the hopes that someday (laughs) you'll figure it out. But I actually think with data sets, proprietary data sets are really, really valuable right now. You heard it here first. Hire Fareed as your corporate dev person. He is ready to spend. (laughs) He's ready to spend. Ready to buy some stuff. Yeah. I I wanted to think about like what else is HubSpot going to buy? That's why I asked the data question. I don't know if there are other adjacent tools. I don't think they'll buy another clear bit. But I am thinking about like, are there other data related acquisitions that would make sense? Like, I don't know, an amplitude or like a CDP, I guess, you know, segments already. And you got to remember most of HubSpot's customers are these like B2B service companies you've never heard of, right? You know, these 50 people consulting agencies or this like lawn care empire in texas right you know they're not buying cdps right they're not buying cdps which also makes me think why they're probably not going to use clearbit to launch a data hub too because because those folks the the core of their customer base isn't really buyers in this case and the way those customers would use it is if hubspot bakes it into the core features of you know of their existing products so yeah yeah that's why i feel like again three years from now It just is like part of the HubSpot experience and maybe they keep it, they allow you to access it standalone if you were a former customer or if you just need a dev key. But, you know, today you get the dev key, then you enter it in the marketplace. I imagine that integration just becomes seamless based on, you know, an account ID or something like that. Right. Yeah. 
All right. Well, before we move on to our next topic, let's just wrap kind of some of the main takeaways here. I think my main takeaways from this are one is that the acquisition to me makes total sense from both sides, right? I think Austin made a good point that Clearbit didn't really own the workflow. And that was a huge limiting factor to them, like continuing to grow. And so the thing that they needed to do was to sell to a workflow provider. But from the other side of the perspective, all the workflow providers couldn't get the same value out of this acquisition that HubSpot can because HubSpot has all of these different hubs that they can integrate this data into and enhance their marketing hub, their sales hub, their CRM hub, and other pieces. I think the second thing that we talked about or speculated about was, well, does this remain as a standalone service? Do they use this data to maybe launch new hubs in their portfolio, whether it's like a data hub or a competitor to sales navigator, like almost like a sales outbound hub. But the more we talk through that, actually, the more I'm kind of looking at that and being like, ah, that doesn't feel right because it either is not bought by their core customer base or, you know, to Fareed's points, bought the portfolio or it's not part of their main strategy. So I don't know. Those are my two biggest takeaways, but I'm interested in either of your kind of additional main takeaways on top of that. I think if you're building a Powered by Clearbit product, you should probably start thinking about what you're going to do instead. Ooh, okay. <laughs> For the, because like, while I do think some um, Clearbit type features will exist as part of HubSpot in two to three years, absolutely. And maybe even the products like Enrich will, I don't see HubSpot supporting a developer tool. You can put that team on one of many things, you know, you want to put them on helping the HubSpot get product get better, or do you want to help them, you know, help other random products get better? I just don't think that that's going to continue to exist. That's, hmm. that's my only additional takeaway here. I guess my perspective is more like I'd be watching out for what happens on the contractual side between HubSpot and Clearbit and how it might impact companies who use Salesforce in particular. I would be very cautious about a, some type of squeeze or change in service because it's very strategic for HubSpot. So while it may not happen now, I imagine in the long run, people who are like a big Salesforce shop with a huge custom Clearbit integration, to your point around not being able to rely on the API anymore, like I would be thinking about the same thing as like, how do we safely decommission the dependency or at least like have alternatives to, to our conversation around having a waterfall or like a multi-enrichment strategy just because because it's not a standalone service and because now it has a principled kind of conflict of interest in that HubSpot's going to want customers who are using Clearbit to use their CRM. If you're not a HubSpot customer, I think it spells some uncertainty. If you are a HubSpot customer, I think it's like pretty great and actually could help you consolidate your, your stack quite a bit, but probably that won't happen for a while. So don't change course in the meantime. Yeah. Okay. Last question on this. Do you think anybody that we've talked about in this ecosystem relationship, whether it's Clearbit, Salesforce, HubSpot, LinkedIn, in hindsight, should have done anything differently? Should HubSpot have tried to build their own data pipeline? Should Clearbit have tried to become a workflow provider? Should LinkedIn have built a CRM? Anybody that you think kind of made a bad strategic move here? Hmm. So hard to know because we, we're not privy to all the information that goes on inside a company. My internal gut is like, I feel like Clearbit could have been so much more. And the fact that they didn't raise that much also like makes me feel like, why weren't they, you know, a hundred million dollar company? Because they are beloved by 
a lot of customers, myself included. Like I've used them at multiple jobs. So my, I guess like I don't have a clear answer on what they did wrong. I guess my question is more like what happened that led them down that course? Was it product strategy? Was it people? Was it organization? Was it cap table? You know, there are a lot of great companies out there that actually like fail, not because of the product being bad, but because of something totally uncontrollable, like cap table management. Not saying that that's what happened here, but I would be really curious to get that information. Hopefully their CEO does a fireside chat one day. (laughs) Fareed, any takes? I think it is very hard to build a very large business as basically a add-on feature to some other category. And if you look at where Clearbit ended up, they're really a a, a data enrichment add-on for a CRM. And that's a really tough place, certainly to build a venture scale business, right? You add in the fact that it's commodity or became more and more commodity over time, that's that makes it even harder. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's hard to armchair quarterback these things, but I do think that if they could have built some sort of customer touch point that is bigger than just API call, get data back be in a core workflow, have some sort of core interaction, live on the transaction. Like why does Stripe survive even though they're like a developer focused tool? Because like money is valuable and you pay lots of for and it grows over time or the prospect tool or something like that. But at the end of the day, it was always behind the scenes. It's sort of like dark matter versus like light matter in Mm -hmm. the, in the customer's mind. And so it's, it's, it's really hard to build like a venture scale type opportunity around that. That said, as long as they managed their cap table well, as long as they like kept their amount of money raised low and kept their burn totally. like tight, this is probably this an probably awesome is outcome. yeah like it's yeah. not a failure. Yeah, oh no no no! I don't great. think it's it's probably not a yeah. failure either. I'm interested to see what the acquisition price is. What's they? I believe they have to reveal it once they close in their earnings, yeah. but yeah. which will take a little bit while. But I'm interested to see that. But I, my guess is too is that it was probably a fine outcome yeah. for yeah. the founders and the in the team and and the Clearbit folks are joining a company that's just been on a growth tear as well. So, yeah. you know, like if, even if it's in equity and shares, like <laughs> like that, that yeah, is definitely yeah. valuable. Like would I trade Clearbit stock for HubSpot stock? Probably. Hell yeah. 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 Like, yeah. 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 That's fair. <laughs> like, yeah. I think the last note is, you know, going back to, I think LinkedIn probably did make the right move to not build a CRM. The more I reflect and think about that, it just does, also doesn't fit their core portfolio strategy. They probably could have built a differentiated and unique CRM. But if you look at the core of their business, the core of their business is use a professional network to get a bunch of people to give you their data. And then I'm going to sell different audiences, tools, different ways to contact and spam those people, right? The recruiter tool lets me reach out to people. The sales navigator lets me reach out to people. Even their advertising products, it's the same exact thing. That is the core of their business. And that's not the purpose of a CRM, right? The CRM is not a workflow tool that helps you like find and contact to folks. The odd duckling in LinkedIn's strategy is LinkedIn learning, which doesn't do that, which, <laughs> which, is, a, which is a bit funny, but that is where the billions of revenue in ARR really comes from on LinkedIn is through those contact workflows. And CRM doesn't, doesn't really fit that, even though it tends to be part of a, the stack uh, in, in companies as yeah. well. Yeah. And I mean, what's interesting about that case is LinkedIn was classically like a B2C business and all their offerings are B2B and it like sh- completely shows in, in the usage of the tool. Like it, 
it feels as if they like had to figure out how to design tools for teams as opposed to individuals because that was in their DNA was just building a service that individuals could log into and they never had to think about how organizations and groups of people might use their tool. And I can't help but wonder with Clearbit if, you know, you ask like, what could they have done differently? You know, one, I think like if they had had the foresight of where CRM is going today, they actually would have been really well positioned to build like a founder first small company CRM. Because like, what do small founders and companies need? They just need intent data. They like want to understand who people are who are coming to their website. So like, if they had built something like you know Adio or or Pojo or one of those like even Close back seven or eight years ago, as they were building this data service, I think that could have been like very uniquely differentiating for them. The other thing I can't help but think of is like there are lots of adjacent data enrichment spaces that they could have moved into to become more of a data enrichment provider for other services just beyond people. Like I think about. Radar and, you know, SafeGraph doing location services enrichment, like if they had applied their dev forward focus to other spaces of enrichment, that would have also been a way to kind of like expand into other spaces while keeping core to their product strategy. But again, this is all really hard, you know, and and probably because of the fact that they were capital constrained or kept their, their capital low, they weren't able to make those adjacent shifts. All right. Recently, on the 10th of October, so almost a month ago now, the CEO of a company called Equals that builds a new modern kind of spreadsheet released an article he called The Fallacy of Freemium in SaaS. And this generated a ton of buzz, but he really gives a really candid story about the impact of switching Equals to Freemium and how they decided to actually undo that change and move forward. And this graph here is basically a no y-axis illustration of their ARR over time with the section in the middle there is showing their AR growth during the time that they went freemium. And so I think he makes a couple of really interesting points here that I think are worthwhile to talk through in terms of what I'm seeing now, because I saw like two or three other people also talk about this at the same time. I'm feeling a meme around like freemium isn't a fit for most companies. And I wanted to sort of like dig in with you, Brian and Austin to talk about like, well, is that true? Is freemium not a fit for most businesses? And if so, like, what are the criteria that companies should be looking at if they decide to go free and how can they avoid this issue? Their basic feeling was early on, they, they worked really closely with customers and were able to close them. They raised around and they were excited to open up the door like make it a lot easier for people to adopt and come in by making the pricing free with some sort of paid upgrade from there. And uh, so anyway, we don't have to go through all the details here, but they released it free and they actually found that they absolutely like it hurt their business. At least from an ARR perspective, they saw significantly less traction around it. And uh, they have switched now to a free trial. And they actually are like still working individually with customers to get them onboarded. And he talks a little bit here that I think is really interesting. We all hear it all the time. Make onboarding simpler, get people into your product as fast as possible, make it free. You'll figure out how to monetize later. It makes sense and it obviously works for some, but it just didn't work for us. And so my question that I wanna sort of like ask here is not, okay, Everybody should try it and see if it works for them and then decide, <laughs> but rather what are the things that you should be looking at before you make a decision about whether you should offer your product for free or not that could actually make it successful for you? And what are the sort of meta lessons you can learn if you're a founder or a product leader trying to decide if a product should be free or not? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, at first, a couple of comments. I think Equals is a super cool and great product. Uh, like what they've built is pretty interesting. But I think the problem with the article, not, not only is it missing a couple key pieces of information and data, but it, it, while freemium might not be the right strategy for Equals long-term, that, that might actually be the right conclusion for them. The conclusion that the broader audience and sentiment seems to be taking from this is like, freemium and PLG is bad. Yes. Which honestly is just a terrible conclusion, period. <laughs> and and it really kind of stems from a fundamental... It like went in the Twitter blender and like yeah. came out <laughs> as like, freemium is bad for everybody right. and it's a total waste. Totally. <laughs> totally. So first, I think this is a bit of a whiplash back towards a whiplash I saw when the macro rough waters initially hit, which was the common advice was like, oh man, rough waters are coming. You've got to get your customer acquisition more efficient. And everybody was talking about, oh, you got to go PLG. <laughs> and so lots of people started going after it, but it ignored a bunch of things about freemium and PLG, which is one, you just don't switch instantly. It takes a long freaking time to develop because it's not just a pricing change. You have to change things around your product. There has to be some acquisition motions there. There has to be a new activation and onboarding flow, which is kind of what they touch on in this article. You've got to figure out the right monetization levers and mechanisms to convert those people over time. And so this switch doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't even happen within a year timeframe. This is a multi-year commitment if you're going to start to layer on some new motion on that. So my guess is a lot of people sort of overreacted when the rough waters hit. They kind of went to this strategy. They're not seeing the instant results that they were hoping for, finding that it's actually much harder than they think it was. And as a result, they're drawing this conclusion that, oh, it just like, it just doesn't work, right? Which is, I think, just a, a bad conclusion overall. I think Patrick Campbell actually nailed it on the head and in some of his Twitter response to it, who's been on our episode before, which is the most fundamental misunderstanding among most folks is freemium is not a monetization strategy. It is an acquisition strategy, first and foremost, right? And so whenever you see this topic talked about in like it didn't work or it worked and, it, and the whole conversation is about pricing and monetization, it's starting from fundamentally the wrong place. And so freemium is about how do I generate a bunch of potential energy in terms of engaged free users that I can then start to monetize over time. But some things have to be in place for that to work. One is that those free users have to be generating other users for you in some way, shape, or form, typically through a content or a viral loop. We saw this in Figma, designs, draws, and collaborators, Miro, sharing boards, Notion, you know, sharing docs, like all of those types of motions. So that has to be at its place. But the key thing about that is like when you're building potential energy, it's potential energy. It doesn't convert right away. Like most freemium strategies take a long time to see and, and start to play out. But you have to think about freemium from that perspective. And so I actually think what Equals has done is they've just moved the friction in their model, right? In, under the freemium version of it, their friction was trying to figure out how to activate all of these free customers in a self-serve onboarding flow. And then over time, also figure out what were the right levers to convert and, and monetize them. And what they've done when they've switched to now the free trial is that, well, they've made the conversion to a paying user 
easier because the only way now I get access to the product is to pay. But over time, what they're going to find is that they've just introduced friction in their acquisition model. And they're going to have to figure out some new acquisition motions that are actually fundamentally more expensive than the freemium model, which is going to start to push them towards different segments of the market. So once again, it might be the right strategy for them long term. But at the moment, what I kind of from the details from the articles, it just seems like they're moving pieces of the friction puzzle around the board when they actually just need to like commit to one and fill in the other pieces. Right. And and I think that's the big risk here is that you actually never do that work. And instead, you just kind of shift the shift these things around. Mm, love those thoughts. I have a very similar feeling. And, and first of all, like, Kudos to Bobby Panero just for writing the article and having some courage, just because even if the argument is more nuanced, like I think the reason we're talking about it is because he published it. So so kudos there. My feeling is like freemium has actually been around for a really long time. The problems with freemium has also been around for just as long. So it's not necessarily new. And the acquisition strategy piece was the first thing I thought of. And if you look at the article, actually from the acquisition strategy lens, it looks like it worked. Like they got a bunch of low intent people to sign up for equals, which is usually what you do if you want to acquire more people. And all I could think about was, I like to use like the lemonade stand whenever I think about these types of business strategies. And so, you know, like if you have a lemonade stand and you're offering lemonade for a dollar per cup of lemonade and you're sitting on the street, you're going to get a certain number of customers per hour. If all of a sudden you're offering free lemonade, anybody's going to take your lemonade. And so what that means is like you're sacrificing low intent users who are going to explore the product for the possible consequence of real customers not actually using your product in the future. So from that perspective, I like I wasn't too surprised by the fact that they acquired a bunch of low intent users and it wasn't the outcome they wanted. Because again, like you both have already said, freemium is absolutely an acquisition strategy, not a monetization one. When I was thinking about like, how I would think about premium or freemium versus my own company, it would be like through three different lenses. First one is infrastructure, which I'll talk about in a second. Second is complexity of your product. Like how hard is it for you to get to an inspiring outcome via V like, you know, the actual products experience you've created. And then the last one is the time to value, which I think is more of the user experience side. So on the infrastructure piece, I think there's a ton of value in building your infrastructure so that you can be freemium or PLG. What I mean by that specifically is like some companies build their product in a way that they have to manually provision an account every time a customer comes yeah. on board. This actually was the case at Atlassian for a really long time, and they had to spend a ton of time and money to fix the problem. It's been the case at multiple B2B companies I've worked for where they're like, if only we could just allow people to sign up. And it's physically not possible because of the way they've architected mm-hmm. their solution. And so like, regardless of whether you pursue a freemium or premium solution, I think you should always build your product to allow anybody to sign up and use it quickly if you want to, because once you go past the stage in company growth where you can't unlock that, you are missing out on a whole TAM. And and so I, I think like that was the first thing that came to mind is like kudos to them for just like being able to do it so quickly because now they'll always have that muscle motion and they'll be able to offer the product on a freemium basis if they want. You can imagine what if a promotion and they want to let people to try it. What if they want to create demo accounts? There's like a million different use cases around having the infrastructure to allow people to actually use the product. So that was the first thing that came to mind. Second was on complexity of the product, like how hard it is for people to get to value is completely a driver of whether freemium or premium is going to work for you. You know, like I think about superhuman. 
you know, they wanted to create a, a crafted human experience for you, but that was because they wanted people to like do it in a particular workflow fashion. They wanted people to understand hotkeys. They wanted people to like understand that you don't need to use folders anymore. So they had a very specific vision for how people would get value out of the product and that made the product more complex. And so if you have a complex product, going from premium to freemium instantly means that you're going to get a lot of people who are not going to understand what the product does for them. And the last one is like just time to value, which is not only a function of complexity, but also your UX, which you pointed to, Brian, is like you can't just go overnight from a premium experience to freemium if your entire onboarding flow is expecting that somebody's going to handhold them. There are all these like small nuances that you think of when you're going freemium to allow people the experience of onboarding over time in a different fashion. And if all of a sudden you just flip the switch, you're missing out on those opportunities. And again, I think that's what led to the experience that they described where they're like, hey, we got a bunch of people, but they all dropped off. And it's like, yeah, it's because again, if you're selling (laughs) lemonade, you're just like leaving the lemonade. I'm going back into the house and hoping that you're going to have monetized customers that are keep coming back. Yeah. And on that last note, the most common thing that I see is like when that switches, they're like, oh, that's cool. In the onboarding flow, we'll just like use one of those tools to add a bunch of dialogues to explain (laughs) what the tool is. And it's like, no, typically you have to re-architect your entire onboarding flow, which takes meaningful inge product and design resources and and takes time to figure out. You may need to re-architect the whole UX of the product to make it fit that model. And I think that's the important bit like here. I think the other, my only thing to add here, a big thing to add here is if you look at freemium as changing a linear funnel, it will almost always underperform the alternative trial or monetized version on ARR in the near term. Think of it this way. Like Austin's example of the lemonade stand is perfect. If I give my lemonade for free, some more people will show up, they'll use it, but I need a mechanism. I need to think about how to turn that into compounding growth on the thing that actually drives value for my business. So the thing I thought of for Austin is like, oh, I have this really expensive alcoholic-like lemonade that's like $20 <laughs> and I've like now re-architected my offering to make this like free lemonade drive some conversion downstream. But also second, you probably need some marketing mechanism to help the people who got free lemonade talk about where they got the free lemonade so they bring other customers in. So you described this, Brian, as like bringing other people into the product through content or viral loops. Products that don't have growth mechanisms, either internal to the organization or strong word of mouth that makes the B2B product hop from company to company, Freemium's a tough fit because you're basically taking the same exact traffic you had before. You're getting a lit higher signup rate, but a way lower conversion, way more tire kickers, way more in less intent, and you end up with fewer dollars downstream. And I think that that's like, it's just like almost always going to be that. When I saw this article, I was like, not that surprised. The question mark is what are the compounding elements that you are able to add that make that curve really inflect in a nonlinear way over the course of time in the future. And I think the fundraising piece is an important one here, Brian, is that like it actually turns out it's pretty expensive to do freemium. And the reason Mm -hmm. it's expensive is because while LTVs might be very, very high because you're converting customers in these viral products that grow and have seed expansion, et cetera, the payback periods are actually long. So if you think about a product like Slack, where it could take a year for someone to convert, but once they convert, they're going to be engaged for three, four, five, 10 years and actually add seats and grow and go up 
and increase their ARR and have this great net dollar retention. The fact is, is they could convert in a month or they could convert in three years. So you have to be awesome at retention. You have to have something that drives multiple years of value for free forever to make sense, which it almost never does for most products. And you need some meaningful viral growth because you can't just take the same acquisition you had and like feed it into a freemium engine and hope that you get more. You need low cost acquisition. It has to be a piece of the puzzle. So I think of it as like a bunch of puzzle pieces. And if you just move one, you probably break it. The simple thing is the simplest. Come to a website, sign up. We help you set up. You pay money. Like, awesome. (laughs) Like, you know, that works really easily. But I think it's just a matter of like thinking of the second and third order effects. And you have to turn one of these linear levers into a compounding loop. And I think that like, if you don't have that, it's going to be really hard. So if I were equals, what would I be focused on? Sharing, driving, virality, maybe finding ways to get low cost acquisition through content or something else. I don't know what it is, but probably just turning the switch. It's going to be worse for a while. And if you're going to do it, you have to commit to it. And then like Austin said, spend the next year making your onboarding awesome to take that high friction activity and make it lower friction. Or they wrote another blog post about good friction, bad friction. We've talked about this a lot in Reforge. It might actually be okay to ask for a lot of work up front, and maybe you will convert more of them. There's lots of things, but it's a it's a process. It's not just an A-B test that you flip, and if it's better, it goes. You have to commit to it strategically, and that means having some thought about what those compounding factors are. Yeah, look, freemium businesses are capital inefficient in the early stages, but very capital efficient in the later stages, right? right? So mm-hmm. certainly in this market that we're sitting in, this fundraising market, it might be the wise decision to not be freemium because you need to be more capital efficient based on on the environments. But to your question of like, if we were the equal CEO, at some point, I don't know what it is, maybe it's like a year down the road or something, their growth is going to flatten off and they're going to have to layer on some new acquisition motion. And there's a choice, right? One choice is, oh, we're going to stay as a paid upfront product or free trial, but I'm going to need to start to layer in some of the typical SaaS acquisition motions, whether that's content marketing to inbound sales and all those types of things. And as a result, I'm going to need to charge a certain price or figure out some spread internally to justify the cost of those acquisition motions and start and continue to accelerate. The other choice is going to be going back to freemium, right? It's going to be, oh, I need to launch a free plan to open up the acquisition top of the funnel and like convert them over time. So if I was sitting in that seat, knowing that that decision is going to come down the road at some point, I would be using this period to basically learn about which path I need to go. And so one would be really continuing to work on product activation, using that manual onboarding as like a very tight customer feedback loop to iterate on that experience. See if I can get that onboarding, you know, hyper efficient, start to build in some of those sharing loops. They will be constrained by the paid upfront, but you should start to see some of your existing users beyond the paywall start to share. Or I'm going to need to learn how I might start to justify a higher pricing point. Like what segments of the market have that willingness to pay? How do I start to identify the ICP? Like all of those different pieces of the puzzle. So that's what I would be doing. I will say that Equals has a bit of a 
when you think about the products and what it what it takes is their alternatives in the space are typically products people have very deeply ingrained habits with, whether it's Google Sheets or Excel or or even at this point, like Airtable or other things that have been on the market for a while. And so to get people over the hump and break those habits can take like a lot of work. It, it might take a lot of product to build to get to that inflection point over time. I actually don't think freemium is a fit for most SaaS businesses. Just full stop. I really don't. You need a lot of things to work. You need low cost acquisition. You need simple onboarding. You probably need some sort of either virality or content sharing to drive expansion within existing organizations. And you need a really smart either value metric or set of features that are necessary to continue engagement with the product that flip it over. Most products end up with some sort of trial. It is the default. And I don't think it's a terrible default if you're building something like this to say, hey, I can be free, but I'm not free forever. It's a totally reasonable worldview to take on. And you can test around credit cards, not credit cards, et cetera. You can test around whether that trial is time-based or usage-based, right? Like Notion is effectively a trial. It's a number of blocks that you can use, or at least that's what it was. And then you have to stop using it. Some are time-based, 15 days, 30 days, seven days, whatever it is. It is a decent approach. And I think actually the closer you are to product market fit, the more you should err on the side of like having individual relationships with customers. Like you need a supernova product market fit for freemium to work because you need everybody talking about the product to everybody else. So if you don't quite have that, it's prob- this is probably the better approach. So this is not a criticism, but rather a criticism of some of the discourse around it. I think it's just a, the key thing that I wanted to make sure I made clear here. Freemium is hard. It's like really hard. And you need a lot of ingredients to make it work. And you need to really be thinking about the compounding. So I think getting, I think growth is hard no matter. Growth is hard. Right. Like every growth model has its (laughs) pros and cons. You're just choosing, you're just choosing which con that you really, you know, want to focus on or inherit. And that, that's kind of my point before, which is I think a bad decision is just, you know, moving the chairs around on the deck versus, you know, staring the iceberg, you know, in the face and trying and trying to avoid it and try, trying to steer the ship and, and, and fix the problems. So question for you guys, have you seen freemium work particularly well for specific categories or verticals or types of businesses? I can think of one where I feel like freemium works really well, almost universally, but I'm curious one problem with, I think, the article and also just with the concept of freemium is like people are always looking for silver bullets. They like want to know when to apply it and not as if it's like some standard golden rule that you apply in a case. And so I'm wondering if there like are specific cases where like more or less, yeah, the rule like follows that it's like pretty good. Collaborative tools. Collaboration. But, yeah, collaboration tools. I said collaboration and communication tools are probably the most ones. It is interesting to think about equals though on the you know, if we were to build a spectrum of how collaborative a spreadsheet is or how much collaboration happens in a spreadsheet, I think it's on the lower end of the spectrum when you compare it to like a docs tool mm-hmm. uh, like Notion or even designs like Figma, which is something I hadn't I hadn't thought about before. Usually you have like an Excel builder, which is your finance or your data person and stuff like that. But it's not like you have a bunch of people contributing to the same Excel doc like you do in a Notion doc, but um, th- that's just like a, a yeah. odd observation that just came to mind. The other one is things where the developer is the primary builder and buyer. Mm-hmm. I think 
at least need to be trial, but probably premium one. and usually usage-based metered because they're like trying to solve a problem at work. They're not trying to like procure some software. So they're like, if if you're clear of it, you probably need a, a free plan because I need to like tinker around with it and try it. But I don't think it's free for, I think you could do free forever or trial or some sort of metered, you know, version. I think that's the other category that comes to mind for me. Some workflow stuff too, because you want to beta test it first before you like switch everybody to linear or whatever. Yeah, that, those are the two categories that came to mind for me, where it's like one project tasking environments like Asana or something like that, and then dev tools. And what's interesting is like dev tools in particular are such a great category for this because developers are the core audience where they do want to be able to actually just like log in, try it on their own, hands-free. So building your product from the start to support that is a good idea. It's, it's especially a great infrastructure idea too, because like, again, much harder to go back later and design your tool with the complexity to handle that support infrastructure if you haven't done it yet. Uh, another criteria is you need an empowered buyer who's willing to purchase on their own. So your end user and buyer collapse in some way. This is more or less, this you know, doesn't have to be totally true, but it is a lot easier. So if you think of like an Asana, a project manager on a five person team can usually has some discretion to use a credit card to manage tasks for that small team. And yeah, the other one is just, it spreads naturally in the org. This is why task management is such a good freemium business for a lot of these companies is like <laughs> tasks have collaborators and those collaborators have to come in there to see what they need to do. And it just like grows, right? Same okay. with communication and collaboration tools. Austin, what do you think is the most underrated MarTech tool and most overrated MarTech tool? <laughs> you could just answer one of those if you wanted. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like the most underrated tool category as a whole is calendaring as a general process. I, I like Calendly, but I still feel like it's not a perfect solution. I was recently raving about this tool called Cal.com, mostly because I don't think anybody has figured out how to manage calendars when you have multiple calendars and you just want a single view and you want to be able to share that view in different ways with different people and have it all run on Gmail. So like I experienced this exact problem. I have like a Reforge email. I have a personal email. I have my HP email. I have my ramp email. I have a consulting email. And all I want to be able to do is like when I pull up my phone, just see my calendar for the day and have things color coded by what's available. But I want my ramp organization not really be able to be able to see what's on my personal calendar or my consulting calendar. I want Reforge to know when I'm busy or not busy so they can schedule things. I want my wife to be able to see everything but not be able to change it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so like, like, there needs to be a solution for this. Okay. Like, that's like, that's an underrated space. Yeah. Overrated space is probably the CDP space in general. I mean, I could be biased because I've been in it for so long. But I feel like it's just such a hype word now. Like everybody thinks they need a CDP when actually what they need are like different subcomponents of a CDP. They need the ability to collect data. They need audiences. They need some ability to um, federate data. I've been really like encouraged actually by the uh, composable CDP architecture that's coming out because it's making this thing that's like very generic and marketing buzzy become like concrete. So this is my two answers. It sounds like you want to talk right. calendars though. Tell me what your thoughts are. Uh, okay, we are running out of time, but like, yes, 100% that. And the more I get into like solopreneur, self-employed stuff, the more important it becomes. I've made some really meaningful calendar screw ups recently. And some of those are on <laughs> my fault, but like part of it's because I have these multiple 
views and multiple problems around the same thing between family, work, et cetera, and things that are like maybes versus reals. So what I really want is like a way to like color code my calendar. These things are allowed to be here, here, and here. Like for instance, my Calendly doesn't show up in my blocks as like, here's places people could schedule a meeting. And then I end up like saying I'm free and then someone drops a Calendly. And by the time I, I like go in there, the time's gone because I didn't even remember that that was like my Calendly block. For instance, there's like just stuff like that. Yeah. Clockwise does a lot of this really well if you're at a job, but like if you're not at a job, it's not as valuable, you know? So yeah. Yeah. And there are these conditionals, like I'll put a work block where I'm actually doing work but like I could take a call in that time just depends on the call. So how do you signal that? Like this is actually work time that I don't want to schedule with my one-on-ones, but I'd be willing to take for something else. Right. There needs to be like if logic built into it. And actually there's a tool called calendar bridge, which is like, I hope they don't listen to this podcast because it literally looks like it's from 1998. It's like a terrible UI, but it's great at doing one thing, which it takes your calendar and copies it on to all your other calendars. So you can basically create like in Gmail, an omni calendar and then have a calendar bridge basically copy everything onto that and then oh. you can share that with people well you don't need okay you don't need to do that with a calendar bridge i do that with shared like calendars that i publish and then import so sure. i use my personal sure. calendar as the meta calendar but yeah it this stuff is it is fascinating i mean the big problem with this space is like you can't build a new calendar you have yeah. to build on top of outlook or gmail and so you're always hamstrung yeah totally or can you? Anyways, Austin, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This is a great combo. Thank you so much to Austin Hay for joining us this week. I think this was an excellent discussion. And if you'd like to discuss more, feel free to join us again on LinkedIn, Twitter, and we'll see you on Tuesdays from here on out. Thanks for joining us.